Celtic History Podcast, Episode 4, War and Treasure. Last time we left off with how the Indo-European peoples migrated into Central and Western Europe and changed its landscape forever. We also briefly touched on the cultural network of the Bellbeakers. Going to pick up today with how the combination of these two factors led to a dynamic explosion in population, language, cultural, social and political organisation and transition into, into a new world out of which our Celts will eventually emerge in the Iron Age. Before we go any further, there are, as usual, going to be a number of oversimplifications. And I had to show favour for one point of view over another for simplicity's sake. I have no fear, as we're going to return to many of these nuances later in the podcast, but I'm sure you're all as keen as I am to get to some actual Celts. I'm going to start with an excerpt from Barry Cunliffe's Europe Between the Oceans. Now, this book's a little long in the tooth since the development of ancient DNA studies, but Sir Cunliffe has an excellent way of summarising the complexity of the period. On page 211, Emerging Local Elites. Throughout Western Europe, the third and second millennia saw the emergence of elites. They appear in the archaeological record as individuals endowed at their time of death with rich grave goods. Although the phenomenon is widespread, three distinct clusters stand out. He goes on to describe the emergence of the bell beakers in Portugal and the development of elite goods in Wessex and Cornwall. We are also going to focus on Cunliffe's description of the famous bush barrow in southern England from the bell beakers. He also goes on to describe how some of these goods in the graves were so intricate and the materials were from such far-flung places as North Africa, the Czech Republic, and Spain. With the emergence of this bellbeaker trade network, which we described last episode, the elites are able to distinguish themselves with vast disposable wealth. They would also be able to use these prestige items to retain loyalty by retainers in the tribal system, which again we've described previously in the Yamnaya episode. The complexity of this trade network, aided by maritime travel and likely a similar language group known as Western Indo-European, created a much more complex and interconnected world than the one we saw in the Copper Age. This change is so dramatic that all the cultures in the next period are known as the cultures of the post-Beaker era. We, however, are going to zoom in on the area of Central Europe where our Celts developed. We start in 2300 BCE, right at the start of what is known as the Unitis culture. The Unitis culture is a culture named via village near modern-day Prague. It combines familiar tropes from both the corded ware Indo-European ancestors and the bellbeaker predecessors, as well as pioneering some tropes we will see continued up until the emergence of distinctly Celtic culture with Hallstatt and Latin. Let's start with a famous pastime shared by both the Celts and the bellbeakers, metallurgy. Being a post-beaker culture, the Unities culture 
does craft those distinctive, almost teardrop-bladed daggers found in beaker burials. We also see flat axe heads and swords in more elite burials alongside those distinctive Indo-European haircuts, presumably for braids, as well as bracelets and torques in a similar fashion. Wait, torques? Yes, torques. For those of you who don't know, one of the most distinctive and emblematic symbols of Celtic culture is the gold torques often wore around the neck or arm. An image of a torque known as the Great Torque adorns the cover of this podcast. So again, we see graves which are filled with what are likely prestige goods, indicating that classic hierarchy we are starting to become so familiar with in the Bronze Age society. So let's zoom in on those graves and get a look at those prestige goods and try and get an idea of what these fascinating people valued in life or, for that matter, afterlife. So like the Chalcolithic Indo-Europeans we spoke about last time, we see two types of graves. Single flat graves or what is known as barrow burials. Barrow burials have been seen in beaker culture, but they tend to occupy previously built barrows that were made by the old Y2 haplogroup Europeans. But from what I can tell from my research, these barrows were built by the people who occupied them. A barrow generally consists of a central room like a burial chamber, which in this case contains a single occupant who is surrounded by objects that they have valued in life or that may be useful in the afterlife. The chamber is then usually sealed with stone or logs and covered with a burial mound. Remember this for when we reach Hallstatt culture. It's also a sign of the prestige of the family who is burying the occupant, and they are demonstrating the value of their forebear and their current status, which starts to put more of an emphasis on lineage than an individual, emphasizing a more class-based system rather than an egalitarian one. So what were they buried with? Well, as a matter of fact, they valued many of the same things as their beaker ancestors. Many Unity's graves are what is known as hoard graves. They have been found with masses of gold and bronze ingots. And it is thought that some of the previously mentioned artifacts, such as the torques, were also meant to serve as ingots. They were all also burialed with masses of tools for metalworking and craft, which heavily indicates, again, an emphasis on metallurgy. Some of these graves are considered princely graves, which contains some stunning craftsmanship. For example, look no further than the famous Nebra Sky Disc. As long as you're not driving or doing anything dangerous like operating heavy machinery, Google the Nebra Sky Disc right now. It's beautiful. Many have pointed out the possible Indo-European influence on this stunning piece of art. If you remember from our Yamnaya episode, the central god of the Indo-European pantheon was Deus Pacter, or Sky Father which later influences such famous gods as Thor and Zeus. We also see the usual emphasis on weapons as prestige items, but this will become more prevalent and more emphasised in the next culture we will look at. Finally, we come to the important aspect of Unity's culture. They were fully and enthusiastically involved in Bronze Age trade networks established by the Bell Beakers. 
we find their artifacts all over Europe, particularly in southwest England around Wessex. Not only that, but many of the materials used by the Unity's culture can be traced to that metal-rich coast we t- keep talking about, in particular what is known as the Wessex Zone. Note that these post-speaker cultures were also likely speaking a mutually intelligible language categorized as Western Indo-European at this point. The Y-chromosomal haplogroup associated with this is R1b, like all Indo-European descendants, but the Western variant is known as R1b-L51, which is distinct from the Eastern branch out of which develops Greek, Slavic languages and Iranian languages. To the southwest of the Unity's zone, and sandwiched between this and the French barbed ware culture, are a series of smaller zones known collectively as the South German culture. Within this melting pot develops the next stage of cultural and likely linguistic development. One proposed theory of linguistic origin is that Italo-Celtic developed during this time, possibly as early as 1800 BCE although there are alternative viewpoints including the possibility that Italo-Celtic was developed by the Bellbeakers or during the Bellbeaker era. I'm going to follow the former viewpoint from now on and we will return to this when we cover the Celtic languages in more detail. Second thing to note at this point is that Q and P Celtic, that being the Godilic and Brythonic languages, may have already diverged at this point, but this is not the viewpoint that we're going to follow today. From the South German culture develops our first truly warrior society, known as the Tumulus culture, named for the large tumuli that they buried to honour their dead. Similar to some other practices we've discussed, a tumulus is a mound of earth much like the barrows and kurgans we've already discussed. Although the groups we have discussed so far are by no means anti-war and certainly placed high value on weapons, the evidence we have of the Tumulus culture suggests this was a true warrior society. So what do we mean when we say warrior society? Well, this generally refers to a society which is structured in such a way that it allows for the emergence of, and perhaps even dominance, of a warrior class. Think, for example, medieval knights, a group of people supported by the feudal system to dedicate their lives only to the pursuit of martial prowess, spending their days fighting, preparing, and training for warfare. Much like the famous adventurous conquering Normans of the medieval period, warrior societies rarely tolerate a well-trained warrior class just sitting still. These guys get itchy feet. And so naturally, the tumulus culture is characterized by aggressive raiding and expansion, largely into the Rhone Valley, but also north into Poland, rubbing up against the Unity's predecessors in Poland as well. They also expand east into Hungary and the Carpathian Basin. The Tumius culture were not only warriors, however, and their influence into northern Italy is mostly through trade in the early period. Much like their many predecessors, the Tumulus culture picked up the torch of metalworking and they were exceptionally skilled at this craft. They also made good use of the previously mentioned trade routes to influence Britain and Ireland, the place where most of these metals come from, as previously mentioned. 
and it is thought that this resulted in continued linguistic influence west. Later in the Tumulus period, there is evidence that bands of Tumulus people, whether warlike or not, immigrated into northern Italy, creating an important split in the later linguistic development. It is thought that this is where Proto-Italo-Celtic was brought to Italy and would eventually split into Latin, Oscan and Umbrian, creating the Italian language family and then, of course, the Romance language family. Now we move away from the complex and high-minded academia toward my childlike, immature bias towards my favourite historical topic. Warfare. Now, although I recognise my base childlike fixation on the romanticised badassery that is pre-gunpowder warfare, there are also a number of high-minded and intellectual reasons for my interest. But mostly it's just cool. For much of history, we are looking at small-scale tribal raids, mostly targeting livestock. As for most of societal history, this was the main source of movable wealth as well as burning crops and settlements to drive out competition for resources. Rather more gruesomely and unpleasantly, there is also ample evidence of early genocide. For example, we discussed the mass graves found in the Hungarian basin that were likely early Indo-Europeans wiping out the old Europeans of the globular amphora culture. It is also likely that these raids involved a fair amount of sexual violence, and that's the horrible pairing of rape and pillage, which is a reality even up to modern-day warfare, though hopefully less so. However, the scale and range of this warfare will always be limited by the fact that these early societies didn't have soldiers or professional warriors. Pretty much all the men in the tribe would be expected to fight in defense and most expected to participate in raids. And it's likely that raids were seasonally limited. It makes little sense to send all your worker farmers out to fight during harvest as you would have few able hands to gather food for the winter as this is a laborious task before modern machinery. As we spoke about in previous episodes, due to the instability and unpredictability of life opportunities to advance, your social and material status would be limited, and it is likely that every young man would be looking to increase his status and wealth to help him gain a higher status mate. What began to change was the development of prestige goods, which we have discussed increasingly since the Bell Beakers and thus the availability of movable wealth. Looking at the Beaker societies, we find absolute hordes of gold, copper, and later bronze items that have no inherent value, but due to the need of those at the top of society to display their wealth and distinguish themselves from the demos, prestige goods became increasingly more prominent and useful. The second factor is the ability for societies to create food surpluses. As societies become more efficient, less and less of the population are needed to grow their own food. This frees up people to create an artisan class or a religious class or even a warrior class. That being someone who can devote their full-time working hours not to the production of food, but to the production of something that is useful to the market. Someone is willing to pay their excess food for the goods and services 
that they provide. So, more movable wealth gives the chief the ability to pay for full-time warriors through trinkets which physically convey prestige and status, thus increasing the status of warriors in society even further, being able to display their status through fine weapons, jewellery, and even later, chariots. This, combined with the now ingrained client system introduced by the early Indo-European, creates a society which is organisationally and institutionally capable of warfare on a much grander and institutionalised scale. And indeed, by the end of the Tumulus period and its successor, the Urnfield culture, we have our first evidence of a probable full-scale field battle, known as the Battle of the Tolens Valley. Taking place on the cross-section between two other cultures in Jutland and northeast Germany near the Polish border, the Battle of the Tolens Valley is the first suspected battle in Europe outside of the Greek peninsula. To describe this battle, I'm going to use an excerpt from the website of the excellent historical writer, Dan Davis, who writes gripping and well-researched fictional novels on this area in prehistory. In about 1300 BC, in the sodden marshes of the Tolens Valley in northern Germany, 5,000 warriors assembled in two great armies. All were men aged between 20 and 40. Many were veterans of other raids and battles with the scarred bodies to prove it. The invading force led by the great warlords and a mighty chief was armed with spears of bronze, swords, knives, sickles, and bronze-tipped arrows. The most important warriors amongst them rode into battle on stocky horses with slashing swords and stabbing with their spears. The other side, armed only with flint arrowheads and wooden clubs, splashing through the soft ground beside the river, the powerfully armed invaders charged. The men were defending their homelands. The slaughter was great and terrible. The men on both sides fell. Over a thousand were killed and many more wounded. Battle ranged up and down the valley in a hundred pockets of fighting and countless moments of valor and infamy. After the last of the defeated were dispatched, the bodies were stripped of their weapons, jewellery, armour and valuables before being flung into the river. On one side of the battlefield, at the site of the last stand of the doomed defenders, a great mound of bodies was made by the victors and left for the crows. They moved on, perhaps taking the land and the women of the dead men, perhaps simply moving through the landscape to some new location. Or perhaps they returned to their own homes, the matter of honour settled. This great battle would have been remembered for generations. The heroes celebrated and the dead mourned. In time, the event passed into legend. Again, that was from the website of Dan Davis, which will be linked on the Facebook page and the podcast description. With the Battle of the Talens Valley, we enter into a new era. With the dawn of the Arnfield culture, there is a significant climactic shift which may have been one of the factors that led to the Bronze Age collapse. With this, shifts our newfound warrior cultures fall back on what they know, battling their way through the rich empires in the Near East, leading to upheaval and collapse that this new world had not yet experienced. 
It showed human beings for the first time that the complex and interdependent systems of the great Near East were in for a catastrophic collapse. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Picking up the legacy of the Tumulus culture was the powerful and influential Urnfield culture. Being dated not long before the Battle of Talens, this is the first culture that can realistically be classified as proto-Celtic by our previously stated markers. That being, these people are likely proto-Celtic speaking and begin to show more than traces of a culture that is identifiably proto-Celtic. Urnfield is characterised by the widespread and adoption of cremation rather than the whole body barrow burials of previous eras. While this practice will not influence the later Hallstatt and Latin, which will be characterised by its princely barrow graves, many other aspects of Urnfield culture will spread across what will later be the Iron Age Celtic zone will ease the spread of later Hallstatt and Latin across Western and Central Europe. There are some cultural aspects such as the possible existence of proto-Druids, the solar and spiral imagery on the metalwork, but the main legacy passed to the greater part of Central Europe is the proto-Celtic language. Urnfield will spread this language to every previously mentioned area later identified as Celtic, including, and not limited to, the Iberian Peninsula, Czechia, France, Belgium, Britain, and even Ireland. Of course, this influence also strengthened these roots in South and Central Germany, Switzerland, and Austria. It is during this era, in and around a lake in the Austrian Alps, a cultural melting pot, mind from the salt caves of this stunning, picturesque valley comes the undisputed source of Celtic material culture. Halstatt. <laughs>